Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Nick W., Jackie A., and Jim S. Matt Geiger is our guest today. Matt is founder and managing partner of MJG Capital Fund, a San Francisco-based natural resource-focused capital group looking at the junior end of the natural resource business. You can learn more about their work at mjgcapital.com. Matt, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Andrew. Um, first, first time for me, but I, I am a listener. Um, you, you have some high-quality guests on your program and, and ask some good, some good questions. So I'm pleased to be joining you. Thanks for having me. Well, I appreciate that, Matt. Uh, appreciate the feedback there. And uh, we certainly try to, if we're too tough with our questions, we found that some guests just don't come back. But hopefully we can try to find a middle ground there to kind of keep the guest list and also get a little bit more information than what other people are getting out there. Well, let's, uh, for the audience who might not know you and your work, can you give us a background and then tell us why you started MJG Capital to focus specifically on the natural resource sector? Absolutely. So I'm a younger guy. Um, I'm just in my late 20s. So that, that's a bit of an anomaly in, in this older industry. As you mentioned, I manage an investment partnership based out of San Francisco. Um, it has a full resource focus. Um, we'll hold between you know, 15 to 20 positions at any given time. So it's a nice concentrated portfolio. About 80, 85% of the portfolio right now is focused on the junior end of the market. And then the remaining you know, 15 to 20% is in uh, resource investments that fit our mandate, but aren't necessarily correlated to the junior mining cycle. So that could be agriculture, that could be aquaculture, that could be forestry, that could be water-focused investments or, or what have you. Um, but as of now, we are, are very much exposed uh, to, to the junior space. Um, I take a bottom-up approach to stock selection for the fund. So for me, it has much more to do with uh, management team, um, the quality of the asset, looking at spot metal prices, uh, the company's financial structure, you know, upcoming catalysts uh, for the company, the company's price to value metrics. Um, only then do I actually look at the jurisdiction and commodity. So those are the things that are very lowest on kind of my investment checklist. Uh, I, of course, have, you know, specific opinions and biases for some metals over others. But for me, I'd much rather invest in a high quality management team at a decent valuation of a metal I'm not too excited about than to you know be involved with the the latest and greatest flavor of the month which inevitably will will fade um so that's kind of uh how how we select investments roughly half of them are initiated through the open market so through through open market purchases and we're also quite active with with private placements generally if there's a company um even if it checks all the other boxes great people great asset um, you know, upcoming catalysts, what have you. If I know the company needs to raise money in the next, you know, three, six, nine months even, um, I'd rather just sit on my hands and wait for the placement and potentially get warrants and or a discount to market when, when that occurs. Um, in terms of what initially drew me uh, to, to the resource space and into mining um, in particular, um, I launched the MJG fund in college. 
which in hindsight was maybe a bit of a mistake. I, I definitely launched it a few years too early. I think that just speaks a bit to my entrepreneurial personality, um, which can cut both ways. That's both a, a blessing and a curse to kind of want to jump into things right off the bat. Um, we launched the fund in late 2011. So needless to say, we immediately faced three years of pretty immense pain. Um, fortunately, the fund's partners um, have all agreed to a 10-year lockup. We're, we're an open-ended fund, so we, we've taken partners as recently as last month. Um, but all partners are locked in from, from 10 years from their very first investment. So we only accept you know, very, very patient um, risk capital. And it's self-selecting in that respect. And, you know, due to the structure, we were able to survive what was a very painful, very deep and drawn out, you know, 2011 through end of 2015 um, bear market. Um, but kind of stepping, you know, one step back, what initially drew me to the space? You know, I've, I've done a lot of thinking about this. I don't think there's a very, you know, clean, you know, one sentence answer for you. I don't have any family connections to, to the space. Um, I think a great, great grandfather of mine who hailed from Portugal, you know, worked in the Chilean copper mines, you know, back in the early 1900s. That's about as close as, as I get to the space in terms of immediate family. Um, kind of the, the three things though, that I've kind of uh, summed it down to of, of what, what attracted me uh, originally. First is just basic demographics and, and ecology. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in the resource depletion thesis. You know, I don't think there's going to be a global apocalypse and we're going to run out of oil tomorrow. Um, but by, by the same token, you know, over the course of my lifetime, over the next, you know, 60 to 70 years, um, I think humanity is going to confront the realities of our exponentially growing global population, um, coupled with exponentially growing consumption on a per person basis in a globe where there's a finite amount of, of, of natural resources, metals, water, you know, uh, agriculture uh, production capability, et cetera. So that to me has always made intuitive sense. And I think society and humanity at large is, are kind of gla glossing over um, the fact that you just can't continue to, to grow um, exponentially when there's finite resources. Um, so big believer in that. Um, kind of the, the second thing that I think drew me to the space is the generational gap, to be perfectly honest. Um, I, I'm a contrarian, you know, by nature. Um, I know there are some some really sharp younger guys uh, in this industry. They're few and far between, but but they're out there. Um, but a lot of them are, you know, up in up in Canada or Vancouver, um, New York, even places with more of a natural resource presence. Um, to me, you know, I was the only person in the entire San Francisco Bay Area interested in resources. At least it felt like that, and certainly the only one under 50 that was interested in it. So to me, that was more of an opportunity than, than a negative. Um, again, as I said, I'm a contrarian by nature. And you know, for me, I know this industry is gonna be just as relevant as it is today, 60 to 70 years from now, if not more relevant as, as I'm older. And so I feel there's kind of a, a massive generational gap and an opportunity for, for younger enterprising um, men and women to, to get involved, build a reputation, you know, learn through experience and kind of become the industry leader, leaders in the 20 to 30 years from, from today. So taking the very long-term view there. And then finally, so, sorry about this long-winded answer, kind of the third factor I think that attracted me to this space is kind of the psychology of it. I mean, there is no industry out there with, with the possible exception of shipping, 
Um, but there is really no industry out there that's more volatile or more cyclical than the natural resource space, and particularly the junior mining space. And so for me, uh, your average investor out there views cyclicality and volatility as negatives and as things to avoid. Uh, from my perspective as a value investor, if you have the right temperament and the right personality, and I think I do have a bit more stomach for risk, a bit more stomach for volatility than most people out there, I think you can redefine your relationship with volatility and with cyclicality and, and turn it to your advantage. And so for me, if anything, these factors that are inherent with the industry are features and not bugs. And so for a lot of the reasons people stay away from the junior mining or the, the mining space in general, it, it, it attracted me because I feel that I have a better psychological tolerance for the, for the ups and downs and the big swings that we see in either direction. So that's kind of my long-winded explanation of what, what drew, me to, drew me to the space initially. Appreciate the uh, summary and the introduction there, Matt. I think that you're absolutely right in a lot of the things you bring up, with the exception of that I don't understand why you still are in San Francisco, but we'll leave that for another discussion. <laughs> <laughs> I can answer that very quickly. I mean, to, to be honest, I think there is an incredible amount of hypocrisy in Silicon Valley. And it really frustrates me that the, the very investors that are you know, putting money into the, the newest Teslas and the, you know, the newest uh, battery um, you know, technology and the newest renewable energy, you know, the, the part of the world that's driving innovation just fails to see the significance of, of metals going into what's being created. None yes. of the stuff being created in Silicon Valley would be possible without the metals that are pulled out of the ground. And so there's a pretty big disconnect there that I'm hoping over time I can help bridge. Because there are some, you know, th there's a lot of uh, negative um, perceptions about San Francisco and the Bay Area. Um, one thing I would say is that there is a risk-taking appetite here. And there's also a lot of capital sloshing around, as you, you could imagine, given that you know, we're 15, 16 years into a, to a tech bull market. And so I think there's the capacity for, for Silicon Valley kind of VC-like investors to, to become um, enmeshed in, in the junior mining scene and to, to kind of transfer some capital from tech into mining. Certainly hasn't happened yet, um, but that's, you know, I, I think there's the potential and the opportunity there. And then just for me personally, there's very little competition in terms of other asset managers in the same area. So for me, I, I stick out like a sore thumb and I, I like that. Certainly, you know, California is an attractive area. I, I one day hope that the uh, the state politics and the regime there will clean up their act a bit. But nonetheless, it's certainly a notable place to be. And there's certainly no shortage of capital in that area. Cost of living is pretty insane here. Um, yes. Just, just given where we are in the cycle, you know, I'm living like a Spartan right now. I'm living as frugally as I can. You know, maybe in five or six years, investors that are in right now can can ball out and start living the high life. But for now, you know, I have, you know, the vast majority of my net worth scrolled away into the into the MJG fund because um, I think we have some, you know, three to five years ahead where fortunes can be made. Yes, and the sector certainly uh, provides a interesting profile, as you said, cyclicality, and some degrees predictability as well, where you might not have that in some other areas. And so I think that there's some good opportunities uh, before us, and and of course uh, we over here are quite focused on it as well. Can you share a little bit more about the the structure there at MJG? Can you speak to maybe the fund size? Uh, what the house rules are as far as, I know you spoke uh, a few of those house rules as far as fees, um, and then also maybe uh, speak to the performance uh, over the last couple of years. 
Certainly. So I, I won't give you an exact figure on the on the size. Um, I can say we're sub 10 million um, in terms of assets under management. So we're, we're a smaller fund. You know, it, it, it's tough for, for a younger guy of my age to, to raise capital and even more difficult when you put a 10 year lockup on all, all new money coming in. Of course, that's a conscious decision that I, I made. Um, you know, there's plenty of investors that would have put money in and we could maybe have 60 to 70 partners or, you know, two to three X the amount um, if I'd had less onerous restrictions. But I really wanted to set the, the, the fund up for success, long term success. And I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm happy with the decision there. Fees are quite low, even though it's structured, you know, like a, a hedge fund. It's the LP LLC setup. Um, where each new investor becomes a limited partner in the fund and has to be an accredited investor. Um, I don't charge the onerous uh, two and 20 um, management fee that you'll see with a lot of hedge funds. Um, I just go with a simple one and a half percent management fee and no um, performance fee or no carry as it's sometimes called. Um, some people say, well, you're not aligned as an investor. You know, what, what's your incentive to make money? It's like, well, firstly, especially some of the very earliest investors, you know, there's a lot of friends and family in, in this fund. So I have an incredible incentive to, to make these people money who have put trust in me from the very beginning. Secondly, at this point, you know, I own 25% of the partnership personally. So I'm, I'm very much um, invested and very much incentivized uh, to, to, to make this work um, in a big way. Um, like I mentioned, um, we started in late 2011, I think with around nine original partners um and we've since grown to just below 30 um with money coming in you know on a, on a monthly basis at, at this point the fund is starting to gain some some good momentum um that really started in early 2016 where i think the long and, and drawn out bear market of 2011 through 2015 finally uh, ended you know there's been some rocky years in between now and then, uh, last year, 2018 um, in particular comes comes to mind. But on an absolute and relative basis, um, we're looking uh, really good um, over the past um, five years. Um, I don't want to go into specific long-term um, kind of per performance um, metrics. Um, I can say that this year um, we've had a quite quite a strong year, um, even though half of the portfolio is exposed to base and energy metals. Um, the precious metals or gold and silver investments um, have really uh, carried the day. Um, as of mid-2019, we were up 42%, um, I believe, over the trailing six months. And I'll be reporting our uh, final year-end results in early January. I send out an investor letter to all of the funds LPs, as well as um, people that are following the partnership generally. And I expect our returns to be kind of in that 40 to 50% range um, for, for 2019. So that's positive and I think will we'll result in, in further, further inflows. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's kind of the, the immediate performance um, metrics. Um, you know, I think through mid-year of this, this year, we were maybe up 120% over the trailing three years. So that gives kind of some perspective that over the short and medium term, we've, we've done quite well. Um, but my hope here is that for the next three to five years, um, most of the gains have, have yet to be made. Well, let's talk uranium, precious metals, and base metals. But first, can you just give me briefly your thoughts on the broad market at this point and going into 2020? 
Sure. Well, I'm, I'm not a, a macroeconomist. Obviously, I, I try to follow the general economic um, picture and, and do, have, do have my own opinions. I mean, personally, I think this recovery is extremely long in the tooth. And we're, we're what, in the 11th or 12th year of really an unabated um, recovery since the great financial crisis. It's been largely driven by both fiscal and, and monetary stimulus. So I think it's, it's somewhat artificial. Um, I've thought for a few years now that we're quite long in the teeth and that the end is, end is near. You know, I've now come to the conclusion that at the very least, the, the central banks are going to be able to push off um, a recession or, you know, more specifically, a stock market decline, um, at least through the upcoming U.S. presidential election in uh, November of 2020. So at least in over the next nine to 12 months, I don't think we're going to see a, a global blow up. Um, I don't think we're going to see that 2008 black swan um, you know, liquidity crisis that that many people have been anticipating for for years. Um, I'm obviously very cautious on the U.S. stock market in particular. I think a lot of asset classes are are completely priced um, for perfection, particularly in the U.S. Um, I think globally, you know, there could be some value in in emerging markets. Um, you know, I'm a bottom-up investor, as I mentioned earlier. So I think through individual stock selection, um, no matter what market you're buying in, there, there can be money to be made. But in terms of for friends and, and family and people asking for my advice, I mean, I, I would limit exposure to, you know, the major U.S. indices um, as much as, as you possibly can, because I, I think they are they are priced for per, per perfection. But I don't necessarily think there's an imminent decline coming in, in the, the next few months. Um, if anything, we could see a, a little bit of a recovery going into next year. I don't think it's going to be particularly strong or exciting. But you know, we, we just saw the job numbers come out earlier this week that surprised the upside in the United States. Um, you've seen indications that stimulus uh, measures in China, um, you know, seem to be working at least at least to some degree. Um, I saw a couple of days ago there was a good Reuters article talking about how China's crude oil imports are up ten and a half percent year to date um, when compared to the same period in 2018. Their coal imports are up 10%, 10.2% year to date um, when compared to the same period last year. And their copper ore and concentrate imports um, are up around 8.5% uh, um, when compared to the first 11 months of 2018. So, you know, that's, that's positive from at least a raw material demand perspective and maybe speaks to the state of the global economy. We, we may not be quite near the end yet. And Matt, as we go through this transition period with the election in the U.S. coming up next year and so forth, and as you mentioned, long in the tooth, what's your thought on where we are in the natural resource sector when you go back and you look at, say, a 2008 type setup where everything came down uh, versus maybe a 2001 type setup where the, the big market had, had risen and was in decline? But natural resources inversely reacted to the broad market. What do you what do you see going forward? How do you see this really playing out as natural resources get going? That's a great question. I mean, and there's a big distinction between you know the 2000 2001 period and 2008 period. Um, you're probably well aware of this. In 2008, commodities, you know, metals, um, you know, agricultural products, uh, just basic materials across the board, had just gone through a six to seven year bull market. 
So when that major, you know, broader market correction came, those two were, were priced for perfection and the pain was substantial. 2000, 2001 is a bit different because they'd already been beaten up for years and years and years. And so there, there wasn't all too many gains to, to be given up at that point. Um, I, I'd like to think that, you know, when we do see the next market meltdown, which is inevitable, again, it, it may not be for five years from now, but there will be another painful 2008-like crisis. And it's going to happen sooner rather than later. You know, I, I think if you're invested in junior um, companies, you should understand that there are risk equities at the end of the day. And the chance for uh, dramatic near-term capital losses are quite possible, um, even if it has nothing to do with the underlying fundamentals of the company. If we truly do go through a major risk-off, you know, panic event, I think it would make sense for for juniors to to sell off. The the degree for them to sell off again remains to be seen. I'd like I'd like to think that it would be more of a 2000 2001 like scenario, where since they're not price for perfection and in, in some ways are as cheap as they've been in, in decades, that any pain from an imminent market collapse would be somewhat muted, at least relative to what we saw in 2008. But I also don't, you know, I, I don't think you should delude yourself as an investor and you should bake in, you know, at least a 30 to 40% drop in these and even some of your better junior mining holdings, you know, um, when we next, when we next see broader market uh, turbulence. And I think you have to, psychologically prepare for that so that if slash one that occurs you don't panic and sell out at the bottom um, assuming that the company's fundamentals haven't changed and that your investment thesis hasn't changed certainly and i think that's where cash comes into play quite heavily making sure that you're prepared for some of that uh, potential outcome versus uh, some of the other potential outcome that we we could potentially see like a 2001 type scenario so i think cash is is really kind of the key to, to be, or cash equivalents, if you will. Well, let's move to Uranium, Matt. Can you tell us how long you've been in the sector? What have you learned over your period in the sector? And what strategy are you employing for exposure going forward? Well, we, we've had a, a very painful experience with Uranium um, really over the past, we'll say three and a half years. I think, you know, we, we first bought Uranium names is either late 2015 or, or sometime during 2016. So it's certainly been a decent percentage of the portfolio for, for multiple years now. Fortunately, not too large of a percentage of the portfolio to, to weigh too heavily on our performance. So I think I've gotten that right to some degree. Um, as you know, recently as mid-year 2019, our uranium portfolio, or sorry, our uranium exposure on a weighted basis was you know, in the 13 to 14% range in terms of the total MJG portfolio. Um, now is a combination between a couple sales we've made and just capital depreciation. Um, you know, it's, it's closer to the five or six percent mark. So it's we still have a foothold in uranium names, but it's a bit uh, weaker than it's been in, in years past. Um, my hope is to to beef that up closer to, to double digits over the over the coming few months. Um, you know, I, I remain a uranium bull, <laughs> especially in, in, in the long term here. Um, I think the narrative is brain dead simple. Um, I think it has the potential to be grasped by millennials and by generalist investors and really everybody that are at least somewhat pragmatic. You know, nuclear being the only form of baseload power that can generate electricity around the clock 24-7. 
um, without any CO2 emissions. Um, I think just politically, um, you know, even if you're not a, a Greenpeace advocate or an environmentalist, um, you know, I, I think the changes we're seeing um, in the emerging world and in places like China and India, where it's become a political necessity for the governments there to, to keep to clean their airs and to, to you know, uh, reduce pollution. Again, not out of the goodness of their hearts, but purely in terms of, of maintaining political power. Um, you know, pollution is a major, major issue. Um, and so I think from a long-term demand perspective, we're going to continue to see reactor build out in the third world. Um, I think in the United States, you can assume that the demand story is, is dead, at least for, for the medium um, term. Um, but we've also had, you know, eight years now of supply destruction, and it took longer than most industries for, for uranium to rationalize. We only started to see the first supply cuts in the 2016 timeframe. So most companies hung in there for five years without um, altering their operating strategy. But we, we have seen um, supply curtailments around the world. Um, we've seen funding for exploration and development dry up for all but the very most promising projects. So again, I mean, I think this is a coiled spring. And I think that when things do turn, the fact that it's taken so long for the next bull markets to come in uranium will inevitably mean that when it does, it's going to be that much more powerful. So I, I remain optimistic, but it's obviously been a, a tough slog. And, you know, I'd be fooling myself and, and your audience to say that it, things haven't turned as quickly as, as I expected them to. Certainly. And it's a good thing, too, to some degree, because you look at all the symptoms that you outlined, all fantastic for, for the types uh, you and I hear, uh, fantastic opportunities for us to align our strategy and prepare and set ourselves up. And so to some degree, I, I continue to want to say that this has certainly been a blessing to have this kind of delay. And really, as you said, the longer this goes nowhere, the better I believe it'll also come out to be. So I think there's some really good stuff going on. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, talk specifically about uh, how many uranium stocks does MJG have in their portfolio? If you could just give us a count, what do you think is reasonable there? And what is the strategy? Um, do you guys look at all the different stages, you know, your explore, produce, develop? What are you guys doing there as far as strategy and what you see as a prudent number of stocks? Definitely. It's a good question, um, and I'll, I'll go back to the to the point. You know, we are bottom up investors at the end of the day. So while I do have a a bullish kind of predisposition to to uranium and a positive long term view, um, you really need to look at it on a company by company basis. So I would never recommend any investor, no matter how excited you are about a certain commodity, to go out there and buy the fifteen or twenty biggest names or you know, the 15 to 20 juniors that you see that are promoted the most. That That's just a recipe for absolute, absolute disaster. And so, again, you know, the way I would look at it, if you're new to the space, would be to drop a list of all the uranium names. You know, there are about maybe 40 companies out there, 50 companies between the ASX and uh, the Canadian exchanges that, that claim to be uranium companies. You know, maybe... A dozen of those, it's up to 20, are, are decent. Um, but anyway, pull together the full list, work through them one by one, and really just select the two to three that you're most comfortable with. And before you get excited about the given commodity, again, look at look at the management team. Have they made money for investors in the uranium space before? You know, do they operate honestly and, and do they operate ethically? 
Um, do they have skin in the game? You know, are, do they own 1% of the company, you know, between board and management, or is it closer to 15 or 20% of the company? That can make a world of difference. Assuming that they do own 15 to 20% of the company, you know, where do they get in at? Um, you know, are, are there, is their share price, are they averaged in at 10 cents and the company's trading at a buck 50? Have they already made 10x on their money? Or are they even or even below from where they, they put their money in? So all those things really, really matter to me as an investor. I think for these early stage ventures, people are key. Got to bet the jockey. It's cliche, but it's true. Then look at the asset. And I think it's foolish to be plugging in, you know, any uranium price higher than 40 or $45 into your, into your model. Um, so I, I think in the case of uranium, it's, it's okay plugging in a higher price than spot just given how out of whack the supply demand dynamics are. But I think just out of conservatism, if you're counting on 60, 70, $80 uranium to make your story work, then that's just foolhardy. That's, that's too greedy. Well, why not invest in an asset that makes sense at 40 or $45 uranium? If uranium, if the price overshoots when, when this next bull market does begin and we end up flying up to 70 or $80 per pound of uranium, then great. That's that's gravy on that's gravy on top, but I wouldn't get too greedy in terms with uh, of price assumptions when you're looking at the actual asset. Um, you know, look at the company's uh, financial structure. Um, you know, in particular, uh, when when do they have to raise next? How how's their working capital look relative to what they're spending all in on a monthly basis? And what you'll find, especially in today's environment, that basically, you know, I mentioned there may be 40 uranium names out there. Almost every single one of those companies are going to have to raise in the next 12 months and certainly will if we see prices, even if it's a head fake rally, if we see any type of rally, we're going to have a ton of companies coming to market. It's, it's been that way for, for years. So there's really only a few names that I would you know, look at on, uh, in terms of open market purchases. And these aren't recommendations for, for your, your listeners, um, but you know, kind of names that come to mind would be the Kazataproms of the world or the, the Cameco's. You know, maybe maybe a Denison, um, maybe a NextGen. Um, but otherwise, for all other uranium names, even if all the other boxes are checked, good management team, you know, that are incentivized, decent, you know, asset, um, you know, maybe it's early development stage, maybe they're getting later into permitting, um, that, that makes, that potentially makes sense at 40 to $45 uranium, you know, exciting catalyst coming up, you know, checks all the boxes, but if you get the sense that they have to raise money at all in the next 12 months, for me, I'd much rather just wait on my hands. You know, I'd reach out to management. I'd get more comfortable with the story. I'd start to build a relationship with them, make sure that they know that you're interested in the upcoming placement. But for me, I just wouldn't buy on the open market for the vast majority of juniors out there. Again, even if you really like the story. So that's, that's kind of, that's kind of my approach. Um, I can say, for the moment, we only have one uh, uranium holding uh, in the MJG portfolio at the moment, which is quite low. As of just a few months ago, we, we had three. So there's been a little bit of, uh, of a fluctuation there. Um, the holdings, uh, Denison Mines, again, not a recommendation for your listeners. Um, but re reason I like that one primarily is the company's 22.5% uh, um, stake in the McLean Lake Mill which I actually had the pleasure of uh, visiting in, in 2014. It was quite interesting um, on a site tour with Denison. You know, that's one of the most strategic pieces of infrastructure in Canada, in, in my opinion. 
with about a, a Canadian $1 billion um, replacement cost if that was to be built again from scratch. Obviously, that's ignoring the years and years and tens of millions of dollars that it would take to, to re-permit that. But just kind of putting that aside, just rebuilding that from scratch tomorrow is a billion dollar um, proposition. And Denison owns, you know, 22 and a half percent of it. So just on a very, very basic back of the envelope replacement value um, perspective, that covers almost in the entire market cap of, of Denison Mines. Um, and then you also got the company's Wheeler River, um, you know, ISR project that they're 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 pushing along. Um, you know, I, I view you you get the upside there basically for free. Um, I understand that there's certainly technical risk with what they're doing at Wheeler River and that there's a lot of skepticism um, amongst the market. Uh, I, I get that. Um, that said, I have had a very recent success with an ISR project that nobody believed in and, you know, people continue to, to overlook. And that's Excelsior Mining um, down in Arizona with their ISR copper project at Gunnison. Um, you know, we've held shares there for close to six years at this point, and, you know, we're up 5x on our investment. So I do have some experience betting kind of against ISR skepticism. And then most importantly, I just, the management team there, the amount of, you know, intellectual capital from the base, from the Athabasca base, and they've been able to accumulate on that team, backed by the Lundin family themselves, which, you know, owns 7 to 8% of the company. I, I just think it's, it's a good recipe um, for success. You know, when we see this next, uranium bull market, whether it's later in 2020 or in late 2023, you know Denison will be around and you know they'll be pretty major beneficiaries. They may not be the absolute, you know, most extreme gainer, may not provide you with the maximum leverage to the space, but by the same token, you again, you know they'll be around and they'll be able to minimize dilution um, between now and then much better than the vast majority of uranium juniors out there. So that that's kind of our rationale for why that's that's our pick for for the moment um you know I, I am looking to add a second uranium position in the near term here um whether that's on the open market or through uh private placement remains to be seen very well appreciate that information uh matt and uh most certainly aside from cameco denison is without a doubt the best opportunity up in canada from a developed uh, producer standpoint that could potentially happen within the same cycle there's certainly there's there's as well you know not not to not to jut in i know you know this space inside is out and out but i, I would say that's a that's an incredible asset um incredibly disruptive asset i know i know disruptive is a very cliche word in, in the business world today but I, I truly mean that. I mean, there are plenty of development projects out there globally that maybe would make it into production in 20 to 30, sorry, the 2030 to 2040 year timeframe if it wasn't for NextGen's aero discovery and the insane amount of production that will be coming out of it in, in the coming years. You know, that said, it's, uh, it's in a very infrastructure poor part of the basin. So there's a long timeline for first production and a lot of hoops that have to be jumped through before the company can get there. And also, I just don't have the same relationship with management there um, as I do with the, with the Denison guys. There's not that level of comfort, not that level of, of trust. Um, and I think the Denison guys have been able to run a, a, a leaner ship, um, so, so to speak, than, than next gen. So again, that's a phenomenal asset. It's definitely one that's that's on the on the radar, um, and it's a potential open market purchase. But there are some some hairs with that one as well. 
Yeah, certainly further out on time frame on that one. You know, I'm not sure what the uh, what kind of demand uh, for the contracting appetite will be, uh, say post 2025 or beyond that, as far as you know the lead time and the bottleneck to get that stuff actually uh, in a utility's hand. So, just not sure if the time frame matches up with. Um, some of the other uh, nearer term demand issues that I suspect will be much, much more advanced than, than you know, post 2025. And that even that is pretty uh, ambitious uh, to have such a, a project built out and in production by 2025. I think that's even a, a bit of a pipe dream. But uh, let's let's move on. Um, let's talk about precious metals, Matt. Thoughts on the market there. And when I say precious metals, uh, maybe you can give us your thoughts on gold, uh, silver, and uh, you know, platinum, palladium, those four potentially. What do you see coming out there, and and what is the the area in the precious metals that you really like? Yeah, so no no strong opinion on on the PGMs. I've largely stayed away. Again, if it's the right management team with the right asset, if all the boxes are checked, I will I will take a look. But to me, I'm a bit worried about the demand picture there, just given that you know 90% of PGM demand comes from catalytic converters. And there's a big question mark there about electric vehicle adoption and how that's going to affect PGM demand in, in the coming years. Um, so we don't have any PGM exposure at the moment. The bulk of our precious metal exposure comes either through, through gold or silver. Um, funny enough, uh, gold is actually my least favorite metal, just from a, from a very personal standpoint. Um, you know, I, I have a bias towards the metals that help us live our 21st century lifestyle. And I like the nickel that's going into our EV batteries and the rare earth metals that are going into our wind turbines and the, you know, uranium that's going into our, our nuclear plants and what have you. Um, but again, you know, gold is a, a metal where I'd say I think close to 50 percent of the TSXV. Um, the juniors are focused primarily on gold. And I think that number is 35 percent in the ASX. So, you know, 40 to 50 percent of juniors globally are focused on gold. And so if you're willing to sift through those companies one by one, there are some pretty um, phenomenal management teams uh, to, to focus on. But I guess you asked the question more on the macro view. So, I, so taking a little bit of a, of a step back, you know, my argument for why gold right now, it's very simple. Maybe, maybe it's, it's too simple for some, um, but I just think the negative interest rate environment that we find ourselves in just can't be overlooked for anybody looking at, at, at gold as an investment. Uh, I know the numbers have moderated to some degree, but as recently as August, we had literally 30% of investment grade bonds, um, and that could be either corporate debt, government debt, or securitized uh, loans from, from consumers, 30% were yielding um, below negative on a nominal basis, which is just insane to me. Because um, from my perspective, the very best argument against owning gold and this has been an argument used by, you know, anti-gold bugs for, for, for decades now, is that, you know, it's a pretty yellow rock that sits in a box and earns you no interest. And I actually think in a lot of market environments, that's actually a pretty devastating argument, at least why you shouldn't own physical gold. You know, what, why not make a yield with, with something else? But again, the, the best argument against gold, at least, you know, for the past few decades, has now been flipped on its head, and it's the best argument for gold. You know, now if your options are negative yielding bonds, where you're basically just taking uh, reward free risk, to be honest, um, you know, a, a pretty piece of rock sitting in a sitting in a um, a vault, you know, 
earning you an honest 0% actually is a really good looking proposition in today's day and age. So I just think for that simple reason, the the wind is at the sails of, of gold and, and gold investors. Um, I think the consolidation period that we've seen over the past 12 weeks or so, 12 to 15 weeks, is actually very positive. Um, I, I was worried about, you know, I, I'm hopeful that this bull, this gold bull market will last for three, five, you know, even up to 10 years. That's on the extreme end. Um, but the, the fact that we didn't go straight up like we did in 2016, where we had, you know, basically nine months, eight months of unabated euphoria, um, you know, followed by a, a pretty significant slump. To me, that gold broke that key, you know, 1375 technical level, you know, topped out at 1550. And now it's just been hanging in there quietly, you know, in the 1460, 1470, 1480 range. To me, is a huge positive. And as an investor looking for companies trying to drive value on a you know company specific fundamental basis, I am totally okay with this this current gold level. You know, it, it, to me, it's not that important that we we resume our ascent higher tomorrow. I'd be very happy if we can continue to consolidate here for the next six to nine months. So I think things are set up pretty well for for gold and silver um, investors. Um, and those with high quality equity exposure. Um, I guess my one word of caution, this is not a contrarian opinion at this point, uh, at least amongst the gold bug community. Um, I do think for the general investment audience, very few people are talking about gold or they're indifferent, so that's a positive. But at least amongst the precious metal investors who have you know, stuck, stuck with precious metals through thick and thin, there is a bit of excitement um, about what's coming in 2020. And I just think things could take a little bit longer to materialize than, than, than most gold bugs are anticipating. And again, um, from my time frame, the way we invest, that's just fine with me. You bring up a lot of good points. Uh, for us, certainly gold is a big part, in my view, a large part of wealth protection. Not necessarily that it pays you anything, but it certainly protects. And uh, that, that to me is a, a big key and, and is why, you know, we would certainly look at physical metals such as gold and silver. Uh, gold is kind of the cornerstone of that portfolio uh, for wealth protection against things like dilution of currency units, etc. Can you speak to just a little bit about uh, what equities in the space you look at? I know you mentioned earlier, there's certainly a focus towards the junior space. Um, is there any uh, producers, uh, larger or mid-tier producers you look at in the gold and silver space? How are you guys approaching that as far as maybe if you can share a name or two with us and uh, where you're mostly focused? Yeah, so so the major producers, that's actually not our, our focus at all. Um, throughout basically the the entire portfolio. So I you know I've I've multiple investing biases, and I think it's good to be honest with yourself um, and kind of understand what those biases are. Um, for me, I'm I'm a sucker for for the royalty names. So if I want kind of production exposure to a certain commodity or what have you, the closest we'll, we'll generally get is through a royalty and streaming name. Um, and then I also have a bias towards the prospect generator business model. And I think the reason for both of these and why I like both the prospect generator business model and the royalty business model is that I've, I've come to the conclusion that the, the number one um, enemy of junior mining investors is, is dilution at the end of the day. And a lot of people say, you know, you need high quality management or this or that. I agree with that a thousand percent. But I think 
part of the reason you always look at management first is that the very best management teams are able to minimize uh, dilution or in some ways avoid it entirely. And the prospect generator and royalty business models are designed specifically to reduce dilution and, and hopefully eliminate it entirely if, if things go to plan. So, you know, most of our exposure comes through either prospect generators or royalty names, at, at least in the gold space. Um, one company I'd, I'd highlight that kind of fits, fits the mold, um, it's one that I've written about for a few years now. Um, anytime I send out, um, we send out two investor letters per year, one in January and one in, one in July. And for each new investor letter, I will highlight a new featured investment, which is one of the companies in, in the portfolio um, that I'm highlighting both to show current partners of the fund um, how I'm um, kind of thinking about things, how I'm making investment decisions, why, why I like what I do. And then, you know, also giving the company a little bit of, of exposure and, and getting the name out there. So one of the names I, I wrote about a couple of years ago, and I've been, you know, putting out an update every six months and every um, pursuant um, investor level uh, letter is uh, Golden Valley Mines, company's GZZ. And it's uh, become one of our largest gold holdings and one of the largest holdings in the portfolio at this point. Um, I like quite a, quite a few things about, about the company. I guess just starting with management right off the bat, you know, board and management, they own close to 30% of the company and they've been net buyers with no selling to my knowledge for, for years at this point. So it's very tightly held by insiders. Um, CEO Glenn Mullen um, is an honest guy. He's hardworking. Um, he doesn't have a very big name within the industry, at least with, amongst retail investors. But he already has, you know, two discoveries to his name. Um, you know, he was a big part of uh, a nickel discovery um, back around 15 years ago that ended up being taken out by a Chinese group. Uh, I think the company is called Nunavut Nickel. And he was also uh, staked and was part of the discovery of what has become the Canadian uh, Malartic mine um, as well. So he's a good background. He's incentivized and he's honest. And he's working in his area of core competencies. He's lived in Quebec and this has been his backyard for his entire life. And Golden Valley Mines is, is specializing in Quebec. So it, it's kind of a, it's a prospect generator business model. I almost view Golden Valley at this point as more of a royalty play. And that's, the story gets a little bit complicated here. That's because Golden Valley Mines owns 46% of a company called Abitibi Royalties. Um, and that's uh, ticker RZZ. And Abitibi Royalties owns a 3% NSR, so a pretty healthy royalty, over large portions of the Canadian Malartic mine, with uh, cash flows expected to, to pick up um, multiple times in the coming, in the coming years here. Um, so those are incredibly valuable royalties in my mind on a world-class operation which to my knowledge is the largest um, gold producer in Canada in terms of any single single operation. Um, and so there's, there's good exposure there from a royalty standpoint. The catch is that on paper, these Abitibi royalty shares are you know, worth $80 million Canadian or so, um, at least when I did the math most recently. And Golden Valley's entire market cap is trading at a 30 fully diluted market cap 
is 30 to 35% below the value of the Abitibi royalty shares alone. So for me, that's an opportunity to you know, pay 70 cents on the dollar um, for a high quality junior royalty name with an asset that with with royalty assets that I think may be taken over at some point during during this cycle. So for me, the investment case is compelling just for that discount alone. But then on top of that, you get a bunch of free exposure to other things that I would consider lottery tickets. You know, Golden Valley Mines also has a two and a half to four percent sliding NSR over serious resources Chichu project. Um, which, which is great, and they're getting no value from the market at all. If you buy Golden Valley shares, you get that for free. Um, Golden Valley's also optioned a property to uh, O3 Mining, the newest of Cisco Metals uh, gold vehicle. And sure enough, um, you know, my understanding is that the drills are turning on Golden Valley's Golden Valley's Centromoc property as we speak. Again, you get that entirely for free. Golden Valley has a 20% free carry on that project, and then that can convert into a 2% NSR. That that becomes, you know, comes entirely for free. They also have an active joint venture with uh, Bonterra on on one of their properties where we saw drilling as recently as last year. Again, that comes completely for free. And they then have a huge grassroots portfolio in Quebec, where I think as this mining cycle picks up, we're going to see more and more deal flow. So for me, a company like Golden Valley, it, it checks a lot of boxes. You know, it's the prospect generator business model. Company hasn't had to raise money for years. No reason to do so in the foreseeable future. It's the right people. You know, they're incentivized. They're honest. They have a long-term perspective. Um, the price to value is very compelling. Um, you know, company looks undervalued based on the Abitibi royalty shares alone, let alone these four or five other things that come for free. Um, and you know they have they have upcoming catalysts as, as well with these multiple drill programs that are ongoing on their on their property. So that's kind of that's a name that's a little bit obscure, but checks a lot of boxes and is uh, the kind of company that really appeals to me. Well, Matt, I appreciate you sharing that information. Uh, some interesting stuff you mentioned, and and uh, hopefully the uh, the audience were taking notes. Um, now on that position, Matt. Where are you at in that position? Are you profitable at this point? Or are you underwater or what's the status? That's a, a fair question. I think we're averaged in at around uh, 27 cents Canadian and you know maybe bought our cheapest shares at around 21 or 22 cents Canadian. So we're, we're, we're well in the money, but you know this isn't one that we're up 10x on or, or anything like that. And uh, of course, you know I just want to throw this out there. Um, you know, that this is not a recommendation for, for your listeners. You know, everybody should be doing their own due diligence. Everybody has their own biases. Everybody has their own risk profiles. But this is just kind of an example of a company that I really like highlighting because it fits a lot of the criteria that I look for in, in a given junior, um, just between people, business model, structure, value, et cetera. Well, Matt, let's move on. Let's talk uh, base metals, uh, final topic. Things like copper, nickel, zinc. Where do you see opportunities in this market, Matt? What's your thoughts? Uh, why don't you first start things off by uh, talking about copper? I think for the industrial metal complex, um, I think that would include some of the more boring base metals like uh, zinc and, and lead, and then also some of the more, you know, what I consider energy metals like nickel and cobalt and um, copper and, you know, uh, lithium, what, what have you. It's been a tough, it's been a tough year, um, largely across the board. Uh, nickel, 
is kind of is one exception there. But even over the past 60 days or so, we've seen a lot of excitement fade. Um, I actually, it's been frustrating, obviously, as a portfolio manager um, for most of our um, juniors that are focused on one of these either industrial or energy metals. Um, it's been a down year from a share price perspective. Fortunately, the gold and silver positions in the portfolio have more than carried us for this year. So, so that's the positive. And I've actually been using this, this weakness, especially during tax loss selling. So we've been quite busy over the past, you know, 30 days here, 45 days here. I've just been averaging down, you know, in, in these positions that are existing um, holdings of ours that we're able to buy at, at cheaper prices. And so, you know, I'm looking to go into next year with about, you know, 40 to 45% of our portfolio exposed to um, industrial metals or base metals, energy metals, and then, you know, the other 40 to 45% in gold and silver with kind of some cash and some other in investments, um, you know, in water, agriculture, et cetera, on, on the side. So I, I kind of want my foot in both camps. I think the potential for an upside surprise amongst the base metals, whether it's copper or zinc or, or nickel or cobalt, is actually much higher than it is for gold and silver next year. Um, my sense is that sentiment is very negative and we've reached what's near peak pessimism at this point. Um, I understand kind of the near-term near futures of most of these metals will we'll come down to where the, the, the world's kind of economy lands next year. And, you know, there's uh, the Trump-China trade dialogue, which just continues and continues and continues, will we'll play in effect. But, you know, as I mentioned earlier in our discussion, there are signs, both from China and the U.S., that we may have another uptick here, um, at least in, in the near term. And I think if that's proven out, then a lot of these metals, and particularly some of the juniors that have just been hammered in tax loss uh, selling, um, could have very explosive years next year in, in 2020. So I'm not, I'm not predicting anything. At the end of the day, I'm just trying to buy, again, high quality management teams working on decent assets with you know, good working capital positions and lots of catalysts coming up. So for me, I'm not trying to pick directions of, of markets per se, but if anything, I think the upside for some of these juniors focused on copper, focused on nickel, focused on zinc even, could surprise a lot of people next year. And I'll, I'll just, I'll just, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, but again, similar with the uranium names, you know, you need to be really, really selective if you're looking at juniors in in the in the base metal space. I guess the most, you know, urgent word of cautions I, I give your listeners. Again, just look at that company's working capital position and, you know, look at how much they're spending on a monthly basis and look how many catalysts they'll be able to accomplish before they next have to raise money. And if the company only has six months of working capital left and their next big catalyst is a pre-feasibility study later in 2020, well, you know right there that the company is going to have to raise more money ahead of that, that economic study. And so to me, it just makes no sense to buy a company like that. Um, when you could just wait um, for the placement and then evaluate it then. Um, but there are certain companies out there, and I'll highlight one we've been buying recently, 
um, a Cisco Metals, which is the Cisco Group's um, base metal um, vehicle. Um, their flagships, the Pine Point project up in, in Northwest Territories. And then they also have significant land positions in the Brunswick Belt and then um, very early stage stuff in Quebec as well. You know, they're a company that has virtually unlimited access to capital. Um, they're, they're very cashed up at the moment. I think they have 15 million in the bank. And yeah, their, their cost of capital is much lower than an average junior with a $60 million market cap. Um, but you know, they're, they're a company that has plenty of cash in the bank and a whole ton of catalysts coming out just in the next four to five months. Um, they're doing a 5,000 meter exploration program up at Pine Point um, where assays will be coming out in Q1 of next year, followed by a PEA um, at Pine Point in Q2 of next year. Um, they have a drill program that's either starting or has already begun um, at, in the Brunswick Belt where they're, they're looking for, for zinc and copper mineralization. And then they have none other than Bob Wares, who most recently is off of his Arizona mining success, um, leading three different programs in Quebec, early stage, they call it Quebec Gen X drilling. They're drilling three different prospects and we're expecting assays you know, in the next 90 days or so. So here's a company with plenty of cash in the bank, um, no need to raise for the foreseeable future here. Um, they have at least five catalysts that I can, I can count on my hand, six actually, coming up over, over the next, you know, four to six months. And to top it off, you know, Bob Wares has been in the market buying and over the past two years, he's put about six to seven million of his own dollars into the company on the open market at prices higher than the, the company's trading at right now. So that's the kind of opportunity that, that, gets, that gets me excited in the base and, and energy metal space. Obviously, if zinc jumped, which I think it may next year, um, I, don't, I don't think a dollar you know, per pound zinc is sustainable given the supply demand dynamics that are you know, the tightness of supply we're seeing behind the scenes. Um, but even without that, you know, there's the potential for major um, revaluations here, um, you know, major catalysts um, that can drive the company's valuation higher before they have to raise money next. Um, and so focus on opportunities like that. And obviously, if base and energy metals surprise to the upside, then great. Um, you'll, you'll get an added win as an investor. But, I, you know, I don't like the optionality plays. I don't like betting on a on a junior purely because I hope the metal price will go up. I'd rather they, them be able to drive value on the ground. And then if the metal price goes up, that will only amplify your gains as an investor. Well, certainly a setup worthy of further investigation. And I, I certainly echo and agree with a lot of your thoughts and views there. And, and certainly things like uh, copper and zinc uh, for us uh, look fantastic. Uh, and have a have a really uh, bright future in, in my view and uh, I think it's just a matter of hanging around and keeping some cash and, and being patient with the market and accumulating where possible. Matt can you speak just briefly before we wrap up a couple things here can you speak just to your position as far as cash at MJG uh, what you think uh, is good for having cash around how much of the fund might be in cash if you can share that and then also how can folks keep in touch with you and MJG Capital? So on the cash front, we are almost entirely deployed at, at the moment. Um, and it's, it's a little bit difficult with a limited partnership. It's, it's different, uh, especially an open-ended one. It's different than your average personal portfolio where we have 
cash coming in every month or, or every every other month. So there's constantly more more money to, to deploy. Um, personally, I, I think it's it really comes down to individual investor preferences. The, the most important thing that cash does is provide you courage as an investor. So you want to hold enough cash where you know if we do see you know a 30% drop across the board in Q1 of next year amongst all juniors, the good, the bad, and the ugly, they all fall due to global macroeconomic events or what have you. You want to have enough cash there um, on, on the sideline where it gives you the confidence to, to hold your nerve and either maintain your current positions or if anything, you know, average on uh, and add more. So, you know, it, that depends on the person. If that's 30% of your portfolio in cash, then, then great. If it's, if it's higher, then great. If you have that conviction and that's at 10%, you know, I don't think it's a terrible time to be to be fully uh, to be close to fully deployed right now. So I'd really leave that to to the investor. But I don't think there's an exact prescription that that everybody can follow. I think the biggest favor that cash affords is the fact that it gives you courage to to hang in there when there's unexpected events that could be entirely unrelated to the fortunes of the companies that you you hold. You know, things can be going absolutely great on the ground. But, you know, share prices are affected by many different factors and you need to have the, the confidence to hang in there um, if a share price is unduly uh, factored um, or affected in the near term by something that's out of the company's control. And how can people uh, get in touch with you, Matt, directly if they have interest in the fund? Absolutely. I'm, I'm always happy to talk over, you know, some of our investments, um, the fund structure, um, and just, just, you know, the space in general. Um, investors can visit the website that you highlighted earlier on the call. That's uh, www.mjgcapital.com. Um, there's a contact form there. Um, and yeah, feel free, feel free to reach out if you have questions about any of the companies that I've uh, mentioned on the talk here, um, or if there are any companies that you're looking at closely that you, you'd like an opinion on, I'm always happy to, to start a dialogue um, with your listeners. Well, very well, Matt. It was uh, really good to chat and catch up, and uh, thanks for coming on the show. Look forward to having you back. I really enjoyed it, Andrew. We'll, we'll talk soon. Appreciate it.